Turn with me, if you will. Oh, and if you don't have a Bible, actually, I'm going to have the guys handle Bibles. Guys are down front with Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, flag them down as they come around, and they'll get a Bible into your hand. You will need one this morning. It's going to be in Acts 13. And trust me, given the nature of my message, you're going to want to look at the text and see if I'm making this up or not. So Acts chapter 13, as they come around, we're going to look at Acts chapter 13. There is no little controversy with this text. Not really... I'll be honest with you, there isn't really any controversy surrounding this text with regard to what it's saying, i.e., do scholars agree or disagree on how to understand the text? There's really scholars agree on how to understand the text. There's no little controversy surrounding this text, though, in regard to the fact that people don't like what it says. Okay, It's very easy, actually, as a text to translate. The grammar of this text that we're going to look at today is very clear. There's really no controversy as to the grammar of the text, the translation of the Greek words of the text, what it is trying to say. The controversy is, I don't like the implications of that. And so I'm just going to warn you, you'll want to follow along in your Bibles um, for that reason alone. Acts chapter 13, we're going to begin reading in verse 42. Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews inside of the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook the dust off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we look at your word together, as we look at what your spirit inerrantly, authoritatively, sufficiently, infallibly, superintended at the hand of Luke in the book of Acts and transmitted to us for the sake of your church. We pray as we look at this that your spirit will give us ears to hear what he's saying to the church. Pray that we be faithful with your word, that your spirit would examine our own hearts, our own pride, and that you would just kill in, any of, in, in us anything that makes us think that somehow we contribute anything to salvation. That we would know it is all of grace. And that we would rejoice in you. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a passage I'm going to come back to next week again to deal with some texts I won't this morning. But I just want to start here. There was a historically famous evangelist who characterized Christian salvation this way. And I won't name the evangelist for sake of not getting us off task. But there's a historically famous evangelist. If I named this evangelist, you would know their name. Who characterized Christian salvation this way. Here's the quote. If God takes a thousand steps to reach out to you for your redemption, still... In the final analysis, you must take the decisive step 
to be saved. God does 99% of it, but you still must do that last 1%. 99% grace, 1% you. What was that last 1%? What was that one last step after God took a 1,000? Well, the evangelist is speaking of faith. He's saying that salvation is 99% from God and 1% from you. God graciously does 99% of the saving, but you must do that last 1% of believing. And my guess is that, that many people in the Christian world, in fact, I would argue that most people in the Christian world believe that's true. Maybe they think it's really 50-50 or 51-49. Maybe 99% grace is more grace than they imagined. But I, the fundamental conviction I would say is somehow among most Christians, I finish the work. Christ does 99% of it. He does most of it but I finish it through my decision to believe. And the question is, is that true? Is that true? Is the gospel, is the good news, a message of God's grace reaching down from heaven 99% of the way and your faith reaching up 1% of the way? In other words, are you a contributor in any way, shape, or form to the good news of your salvation, even 1%? See, I don't think to the average modern mind that sounds radical at all. In fact, I would argue that that sounds about right. God does 99%, I do 1%. That 1%, by the way, and I want to be fair, that 1% being being called faith, faith you generate from your own heart and mind, Or is the gospel message really, what I said, all of grace? Is that what it is? Is it 100% the gracious work of God, and thus faith itself is even a gracious gift of God? Here's my contention. And I'm going to have to prove it this morning in the text. So, So please, if you're sitting there shaking your head going, I just don't think he's right, give me a chance to prove my case. But here's my contention. The gospel is all of grace. You do not contribute even 1%. You do not even contribute a fraction of 1%. Even your faith is the gift of God. You merely receive grace upon grace from the Father in Christ Jesus by the Spirit through the gift of faith. And to establish that contention, I want to review the gospel showing you that it's all of grace from the moment God decreed to save you through this present moment that you're believing. Do you hear that? It's grace from the moment, and I hate to use the word moment because God's decree is eternal. There was no time then, so that's not really a moment. You guys, but you guys get it, right, by, by analogy? From the moment God decreed to save you to this present moment, which is an actual moment because you live in time and history, okay? To the moment you're believing, all of grace. All of grace. You did nothing. In other words, I want to establish that you are saved by God's sovereign grace because he is merciful and you did nothing to contribute. Even the faith that you have is a gift of God appointed to you. In fact, that you're appointed to. So first, here's what I want to do. I want to look at the historical outworking of God's merciful decision to save us as told by the Apostle Paul to Antioch Pisidia. Then second, we're going to look at the two responses of Paul's audience. Two responses of Paul's audience. And as we look at the two responses of Paul's audience, we are going to see Luke's explanation for why some believed and why others did not. So the first going to look at the historical outworking of God's salvation... And then we're going to second look at the reception of God's salvation, if you will, or God's sovereign grace. So let's begin with the first point, the historical outworking of God's sovereign grace. Look at verse 16 of Acts 13. You remember this 
from last week, Paul or Saul and Barnabas went to Antioch, Pisidia. It's marking that off from the Antioch that sent them. There's more than one Antioch in the region. They went to Antioch, Pisidia, and they were in the Jewish synagogue. And and during the synagogue, they asked them to speak. And you hear Paul, verse 16. So Paul stood up and motioning his hand, he said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Now, I want you to pay attention as we walk through this, because I already walked through it last week. But I want you to pay attention to who's doing the pursuing and saving and which is God, and then pay attention to Israel, who's constantly running, sinning, disobeying, or completely passive in this whole thing. Look, look, verse 16. So Paul stood up in motion with his hand, saying, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. That's a historical note. That's referencing Abraham. You remember Abram, Genesis 12. Abram, he's from Ur of the Chaldees. Abram is a pagan. He lives in a pagan land. He has pagan family members. And God comes to him, not because he was seeking the one true God. He's a sinner following paganism. And God comes to him without Abraham ever going to God. And God comes and says, Abram, I'm making a covenant with you. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, he does that. And and Paul sums that up as, The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He chose them. Based on what? Well, if you go through the Old Testament, you'll find again and again it's referenced that Israel was not chosen because they were godlier, that they were holier, they were smarter, they were greater. In fact, quite the opposite. They're tiny, disobedient, rebellious, and God chooses them because he's gracious. Now look at what it says. And made the people great... During their stay in the land of Egypt. They're in Egypt. Um, You guys know this is referencing the beginning of the Exodus. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. He redeemed them. Why? Because they're godly people? No. Because he made promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that he would. If you don't believe that, go to the end of Exodus chapter 2. You will find that he's told, not Israel, you're so godly, I hear your cries. It's Israel, I'm listening to you and I'm going to redeem you because I made promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, I would. Just grace. I'm just going to be gracious to you. And he leads them out. That's referencing Exodus, all of Exodus 1 through 15, verse 18. And for about 40 years, look how it describes it. He, God, put up with them in the wilderness. There's the book of Numbers. There's the book of, um, well, Leviticus kind of gets in here, but it's just law. Some of what gets summed up in Deuteronomy. There it is. God put up with them in the wilderness. That's the summary of Israel. That's not a very positive picture, is it? It's a very positive picture of God. He's gracious. Not a very good summary of Israel. He put up with them. Right? I mean, you know that. If your spouse says to you, I've been putting up with you these past 40 years. That's not particularly complimentary. Right? Thank you for your grace to me. (laughs) I appreciate it. Right? That's what the Lord is saying here. Now look what it goes on to say. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, this is referencing Joshua, he gave them their land as an inheritance. It's just, he gifted it to them. They're disobedient in Joshua. They're obedient, they're disobedient, right? All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And if you read the book of Judges, it's a, it's a cycle of Israel sinning, Israel being oppressed, Israel saying, please God save us, and God sends judges to save them. He's just gracious over and over and over again. Then they asked for a king, verse 21. They asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. In other words, they disobediently asked for a king, especially because they wanted a king like the nations had, not a godly one. And when he'd removed him, he raised up David to be their king. God's being gracious to them again, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man, David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Notice, not as they earned And not as they asked for, as he promised. And he goes on. 
Verse 24, before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. Why do they need to repent? Because they're sinful. And what's John the Baptist saying? God is gracious. He's promised to send you a savior. He's coming. Repent. He's he's coming. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what what do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. No, but behold, after me is coming, the one coming, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. He's pointing at Jesus. And then he goes on. Look what he says. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. Do you notice the passivity that's over and over here? Israel's just receiving grace, grace, grace. And then they're responding, sin, sin, sin. God sends grace, grace. I'm going to make a promise. I'm going to keep it. I'm going to make a promise. I'm going to keep it. Make a promise. I'm going to keep it. And then Israel's response, sin some more. God's gracious again, relentlessly showing grace to a disobedient people. Look what he goes on to say. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, that's speaking of Jesus, nor understand the utterance of the prophets, that's speaking of the prophetic word about Jesus, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. So God finally brings the Messiah he's promised. He's been gracious. The Messiah arrives. What do they do? Thank you, God, for your grace. Nope. Kill him. Let his blood be on us and our children. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days, he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses of the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he spoke in this way, I'll give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you'll not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he'd served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Now, follow what he's saying here. God chose to save you. He chose to send you a Messiah. He did that because he's gracious. And he brought you out of Egypt because he's gracious, promising to send the Messiah. And he brought you into Canaan and conquered the nations because he's gracious, promising the Messiah's coming. And he brought you through the period of judges during your rebellion and sent you judge after judge, pointing you forward to this Messiah he's sending because you're sinful, because he's gracious. And he brought you through a bad king, Saul, and delivered you to a good king, David, because he's gracious. And he promised to continually promise to send the seed of David, this son who would come. Why? Because he's gracious. And the son came. He was pointed out by John the Baptist. Why did God send you John the Baptist? Because he's gracious. And what did you do with this son, this Messiah, when he came? You killed him. And God raised him from the dead. Why? Because he's gracious to you. He sent one who could not be conquered by death to show grace to you. So that you might be resurrected from the dead. So that death would not overcome you. So that sin and death and Satan would be put under his feet. And he promised it in scripture. And that's what they're doing. Just Paul's just backing up. God promised this. He promises, he promises. Why did Jesus come? So God could be gracious to you. Now look at what he says, verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. You need forgiveness of sins because you're a sinner and God is gracious enough to give it to you in his son. He does it because of his grace. That's who he is. Now look what he goes on. And by him, Christ, everyone who believes, and I don't like the, the translation ESV here, everyone who believes, the Greek word is literally, is justified, declared righteous from everything from which you could not be 
justified by the law of Moses. See, the ceremonies and sacrifices of the Old Testament, the moral law of the Old Testament, none of that could declare you righteous or bring you forgiveness of sins. All of that was just pointing forward to God's grace in Christ. And he's fulfilled it. Now believe in him and you'll be saved. The historical outworking. What did Israel contribute to God's gracious electing and saving work? What did they contribute? Nothing. They didn't ask for it. They didn't trust in it. They rebelled. They contributed nothing. If we can say they contributed anything, what we can say they contributed is sin and rebellion. The thing that God is saving them from. That's what they contributed to. What did God contribute? Everything. Everything. God decreed to save. He elected Abraham and his offspring. God worked throughout history to save a rebellious and stubborn people. And I want you to hear this. And God works now. God works now to save a rebellious and stubborn people. And Paul is concerned that Israel understand that she needs to receive the grace of God in Christ. Look at what he says in verse 40. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. And he quotes here from Habakkuk. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. In other words, he's warning the people not to reject the grace of God in Christ, for Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. And and I suppose I should pause to ask you the question, do you believe in the Christ? Have you looked away from yourself? Have you recognized that what I bring to the table in this relationship with God is sin and rebellion? And what he brings to the table is his precious son, Jesus, because he loves me and is being gracious to me. Why? Not because I earned it, not because I'm worthy of it, but because he is love. He is grace. He is mercy. It's because it's found in him to be merciful and gracious and loving. Not because it's found in me to be lovable. You understand that? Do you believe in Christ? Are you trusting in him? Are you looking to someone outside of yourself who died on the cross for your sins and realizing, but, but there, but for Christ, without him, I'm damned, deservedly so. If you don't trust him, Paul says, please be warned. Do not continue in your scoffing. Turn to the Lord Jesus and be saved, or when Christ returns, he will put you with the rest of his enemies under his feet. Now, now Luke gives us two different responses. Some receive Christ and some reject him. Look there at verse 42. Those are the two responses. Some receive Christ. Christ and some reject him. And really that leads to our second point, which is the reception of God's grace. If the first one is the historical outworking of God's grace, here's the reception of God's grace. And and we see two different responses. And as we look at those who receive him and those who reject him, I really want to ask, why does one group receive Christ and why does the other group reject him? So look at verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. In other words, come back and tell us this again. We want to hear more about this Jesus. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Notice that. Here is a group of folks who, on hearing the proclamation, you rejected God's grace to you, Throughout your history, you rejected God's grace to you when the promised Messiah came, but God raised him from the dead, and if you look to him, God will forgive you of your sins. God will declare you just. And if you do not, he will return to judge the living and the dead. And their response, there's a group in the crowd who says, we want to hear more about this. We want to know about this. Please come back next, next Sabbath and tell us again. And then a, that group follows Paul and Barnabas out. And they, as they follow them, they want to learn more. And apparently, the way the, indica- the text indicates it, 
Paul tells them to continue in the grace of God. In other words, they came to saving grace in Christ. They believed. They responded positively. They believed. Look at verse 48 again. And when the Gentiles heard this, Paul turns and preaches to the Gentiles too. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. In other words, there are some more people believing. We know that because verse 49 says, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. In other words, the word of Christ is spreading throughout the whole region. That doesn't just mean it's like newspapers that go everywhere that nobody reads. It's the idea that the gospel's going out and people are believing. Jews and Gentiles, they're believing. So some receive Christ. Some received the grace of God. Now there are others who reject. Look at verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. It's probably hyperbole. Um, We don't know where they gathered, but it seems to be Luke is exaggerating to make a point. The vast majority, like loads of people came out. Probably too many to fit in a synagogue. We're not quite sure where this meeting happened. But, But they came to hear the gospel, the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. I'm going to deal more with that next week. But look what it goes on to say. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. And that's an ironic statement, but I'll get to that next week as well. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. In other words, here's the thing. You Jews are judging yourselves worthy of, unworthy of eternal life. In other words, you're, you're casting aside the gospel is what he's saying. Just he's saying it ironically. You're casting aside the gospel. You're rejecting the message. So we're going to turn to the Gentiles and preach it to them. Now look at what he says at verse 50. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. Now note the obvious difference. Some of the folks present receive Christ, believe. Some of the folks present reject Christ, persecute the preachers even. What's the difference between these two groups? Why do some receive the gospel message with joy and believe and others reject him? And even persecute his people. What's the difference those two groups? Paul preached the same gospel to them all. And, and we can actually see here that the preached gospel will either be an aroma of life or an aroma of death. It'll either humble you or it'll harden you. It'll draw you or it'll repel you. That's clear. So what makes that difference? Why do some people receive the gospel of salvation and others reject it. Luke tells us that those who reject the gospel are fully responsible for their rejection. The gospel of salvation has been offered. They reject because of their hard-heartedness and their sin. Look, look at Acts 13.40 again. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers. Be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. In other words, he's saying, he's calling them to beware, and he's calling them scoffers, and he's accusing them of unbelief. And the responsibility for their unbelief is placed squarely on them as unbelievers. Understand this. Your unbelief, your condemnation, is 100% your work. You want to contribute? There you go. Your unbelief and your condemnation, 100% your work. So if you, want to, if you want credit for something in God's work, there it is. You get 100% credit for sin and unbelief and judgment. That's good news, isn't it? <laughs> now, if the person who rejects the gospel does so because of their hard-heartedness and rebellion, then what's the logical conclusion? See, if I reject the gospel because of my hard-heartedness and rebellion then it logically follows that the person who receives the gospel is naturally more soft-hearted and humble and obedient, right? See, I rejected it because I was stubborn and hard-hearted. They received it because they were 
obedient and soft-hearted and humble? Is that the answer? If one person is foolish enough to exercise their freedom and reject the good news, then it follows that, that the other person who receives the gospel does so because they're naturally more wise in using their free choice, right? Now, I, I hope you would reject that logic. Because what that logic does is it makes believers smarter, wiser, and more virtuous than unbelievers. Is that right? Are you saved because you were smarter, wiser, and more virtuous than your unbelieving neighbors? You believe that, which I suspect many probably do, you will be the kind of prideful Christian that your unbelieving friends and family and neighbors want nothing to do with. Because you're just sitting around in your house wrestling with, how come I believe in my, my spouse is so dumb? They don't. Or so ungodly. Why are they so hard-hearted? I mean, I believe, why doesn't my family member get it? How come my neighbors don't get it? What's wrong with them that they don't believe? See, the same thing that's wrong with you. You just haven't reckoned with the fact that it's all of grace. So if that's not the answer for why some believe and some reject, then perhaps, perhaps the difference is located in the evangelist. If it's not, if it's not located in the person, maybe it's, it's located in the evangelist. Perhaps the person who receives the gospel heard it from a better evangelist than the person who rejects it. But of course, we have to rule out that option immediately simply because Paul preached the same gospel to the whole crowd. Same evangelist, same gospel, same you know, whole crowd, some believe, some reject. And frankly, Jesus was the perfect evangelist and some received him, and many rejected him. So if it's, not, if it's not located in the fact that you're better, wiser, more virtuous, more humble, and it's not located in the fact that the preacher is better, then perhaps it's found in the circumstances. Maybe it's only the people who grew up in the right house or the people who really hit rock bottom who believe. But that's not true in Scripture or in life. People of all ethnicities, ages, social classes, and personal circumstances come to faith in Christ, and people of all ethnicities, ages, social classes, and personal circumstances reject Christ. So why does Luke, what does Luke say, sorry, the reason is why some people believe? We know that he says those who reject Christ do so because of their own sinful choice to do so. Unbelievers are 100% responsible for their unbelief. But why does he tell us others believed? Look at verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And notice this phrase in verse 48. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as. That's hasoi in Greek. And it means... Are you ready? As many as. That's what it means. The number that is set, and no more and no less. As many as. Not as many as and some extra. Not as many as minus some. As many as. The number set. That's what it means. Look at the next phrase, words. As many as were appointed. What does were, were appointed mean? In classical Greek, were appointed is a military term. It was used to refer to superior officers choosing troops and appointing them to certain stations. In the LXX, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament that happens over 100 years before Jesus and the apostles come around and to which they often refer. That Greek translation of the Old Testament, this Greek word, were appointed, is used when a person in power issues a directive for someone under their charge and appoints them to do something. Luke here uses it as God the sovereign appointing. It's equivalent to the words choosing or electing. What did he appoint or elect them to do? So as many as, not one less, not one more, as many as were appointed, chosen by God to what? What did he appoint or elect them to? 
unto eternal life. What does that mean? That means you live forever. Hear that? You're saved. It's another way of talking about being forgiven for your sins and declared righteous. You're resurrected spiritually, and one day you'll be resurrected physically. As many as were appointed to eternal life did what? What do as many as were appointed unto eternal life do? Believed. They believed. So who believed? As many as were appointed to eternal life. Who didn't believe? Those who weren't part of as many as who were appointed to eternal life. They believed. Here is the relentless grammar and logic of Luke's sentence. Only those God appointed beforehand to eternal life believe, and all those he appointed to eternal life believed. If he did not appoint a person to eternal life, they did not believe. If he did appoint a person to eternal life, they believed. And what does Luke tell us in Acts 13, 48, that those believers honored? What did they honor and lift up? It says they honored what? And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the glorious decision they made, that they were ever wise to look to Christ. Nope. The word of the Lord. They praised and honored the gospel word. They honored the Lord in exalting his gospel of free grace in Christ. So how many people believed as many as were appointed to eternal life? So how does Luke explain the belief of some and the unbelief of others? Unbelievers are responsible for their damnation. Their damnation is all of works. The sovereignly gracious God is responsible for the salvation of believers. Their salvation is all of grace. Pay attention to this. God graciously does all the saving. We rebelliously do all the sinning. You understand how that works? Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, because I don't want to hang this just on this one phrase in Acts. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. Paul writes this letter to the church at Ephesus. And after he gives his general address, he breaks into a kind of doxology, a praise. He begins to just lift up the Lord and worship. And in verse 3, he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Why should the Father be blessed? Because he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. See, God the Father needs to be blessed. Why? Because he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now notice what he says. Even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. When did he choose you in Christ? To give you all the spiritual blessings in Christ. When did he do it? When did he do it? After you made a good decision. Nope. Before the foundation of the world. Did you know that before the foundation of the world, you weren't making any decisions? Were you aware of that? You know that, right? None. You made no decisions before the foundation of the world. None. Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us. That's to destine beforehand. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. According to what? The foreseen choices that people will make as he looked around the quarters of time? Nope. According to the purpose of what? His will. His will. And, and what's this to the praise of? Verse 6. To the praise of what? His glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That's Christ. To the praise of his glorious grace. Do you know why it's the praise of his glorious grace? Because he did all of it. He saved you. He saved you in his son. He decreed to save you before there was time and history. Before he created anything, he decreed to save you. You want to know how much God loves you? He loves you before he created anything. You want to know how certain your salvation is? 
Your salvation was decreed before the foundation of the earth, before there was time in history. What makes you think that you can forfeit it now? It's existed from eternity past, which means it'll exist into eternity future because God does not change. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. And if he decreed an eternity past to save you, you know for eternity future you are saved. And that is all of grace. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Chapter 2 and verse 1. It's gracious of Paul here to tell you about your, your part in it. Chapter 2 and verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So what was your position? Here's your part. You're dead in your sins. Your desires and your mind are focused on following essentially Satan. You're carrying out the passions of your flesh. You're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's, that's what you bring. I mean, I know this is humbling, but hear the message. Now look what he says. But God, verse 4, transitions from you to the Lord. You bring sin, what does he bring? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, not but God looking down the corridors of time trying to find out who would be wise enough and virtuous enough and smart enough to make a good decision, but God because of something in him, not because of something in you, because of something in him, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And thus the conclusion is, by grace you have been saved. You're a dead person. You contribute nothing. You're a sinner. You add nothing. God is gracious. God is merciful. God loves you. So God saves you, and you say, it's all of grace. And you praise God. Look what he goes on to say. And he raised us up with him, with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his Grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And in case you're not getting the point, Paul comes back. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And this is not your own doing. What's this? That's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Well, this and it are in the neuter. The words, that that matters because the gender has to match in a Greek sentence. Those words, this and it, those pronouns are in the neuter. The words preceding it, grace, faith, saved, are all in the feminine gender. So here's the problem. What does this and it refer to? And here's the grammatical answer, the whole phrase. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. What's not your own doing? By grace you have been saved through faith. Not your own doing. It's the gift of God. What's the it that's the gift of God? By grace you have been saved through faith. Not your own doing. Look what he goes on to say. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, you can't say I'm smarter, wiser, more virtuous than my neighbor. I have nothing to boast about. It's by grace I've been saved through faith. And even the faith is a gift. Philippians 1.29. It's been appointed to you not only to believe. Did you hear that first phrase? Appointed to you to what? Believe. All those who were appointed to eternal life believed. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So you don't boast. Your salvation is never 99% God and 1% you. It is all of grace. All of it. Look at Romans 9. This will send some of you spinning. Romans 9. Maybe you'll carry me out and pitchfork me after this one. All right. Romans chapter 9 and verse 14. Paul's been speaking in chapter 9 about how God elects some of the, some of the physical children of Abraham and doesn't elect others of the children of Abraham. 
He elected Jacob, did not elect Esau. He elected Isaac, did not elect Ishmael. That's what he says. That's Paul. How come not all the Jews are believing? Paul says because God elected some of them to salvation and did not elect the others. That's his answer so far. Look what he says in verse 14. What, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? See, that's the first question that comes up, right? You mean he elected that guy to salvation? He didn't elect that guy to salvation? Yes. Well, that's unjust. That's not fair. Same fair. Why does that guy get to get saved and that guy doesn't? What's his answer? Well, that guy made a better decision. That's not his answer. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Here's his answer. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it, notice what he says. It does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So what does God's sovereign, gracious election depend on? Not on human will, not on human work, but on God who is merciful to whom he will be merciful. That's what Paul's answer is. That's not me. I didn't write this book. Don't shoot the messenger, okay? I know some of you are packing. So just, and then me. I didn't write it. That's Paul. That's what the apostle says. That's what Exodus says. Moses said it too. Look what he says. Goes on. Verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. In other words, he raised up Pharaoh so he could crush him in front of the whole of the earth. God gets to do that. Because God. So then, you will, verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. He's merciful to whom he chooses to be merciful. And you might reply, but that's not fair. How can we do anything about that? If God appointed before the foundation of the earth, I can't, that's not fair. How does anybody do anything about it? What's the answer? Verse 19, you will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? See, if God chooses before the foundation of the world, who can resist his will? Why would he find fault? With us. How is that fair? Here's the answer. You're going to be so deeply dissatisfied with. Verse 20. But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Did Did you catch that? I don't like this. It doesn't seem fair. How could God work it out this way? The answer, you're a man, he's God, stop your mouth. And what does he go on to say? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one for vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? I mean, isn't that God's right I want to be clear because I know it's going to come up. The point in all this is not that we lack personal responsibility for our damnable choice to sin and rebel and reject the Lord. We, we have complete responsibility for our damnable choice to sin and rebel and reject the Lord. That is all of us. The point is, he gets the glory for the gracious work of appointing us to eternal life and by the Spirit giving us the faith necessary to look to Christ. That is all him. All him. So that you are never, you're never the one who gets the credit. Never. He gets all the credit. You might say, but does, do, do I pray for unbelievers? Yes. Do I share the gospel with unbelievers? Yes. Do we send missionaries to unbelievers? Yes. You heard me pray through a whole list of missionaries that we're sending out. You heard me pray for unbelievers all around you because God works through prayer and through the preaching of the gospel to gather his people. I don't know who is appointed to eternal life and who is not appointed to eternal life, and neither do you. I just preach the gospel freely to all people, and God sorts that out. And I give thanks for his grace. Say, but I don't get it. It doesn't quite compute in my mind. How can I be responsible and him be sovereign? How is it the case? You know, Charles Spurgeon was asked this question, great British preacher, Baptist preacher, was asked the question, Mr. Spurgeon or Pastor Spurgeon, how do you reconcile, how do you reconcile 
God's sovereignty and human responsibility? And Spurgeon's answer was, I don't. I don't. His answer was, you don't have to reconcile friends. Hear that? I don't reconcile friends. You might say, but I don't see how God's sovereignty and my responsibility can be friends because they seem irreconcilable, to which I would say, who are you a man to talk back to God? Your mind can never wrap around God's mind, ever. Just humble yourself and trust his word. Salvation is all of grace. And you know that. I know you know that, even though sometimes you don't like to hear it. I know you know it because what are you saying? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You don't ever sing amazing decision. (laughs) Do you? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Let me pray. Father, we ask that we would trust in the sovereign grace of your Son. We ask that we would know that we would know that it's all of grace that we're saved, that it is your pursuing us because you love us, because you're gracious, gracious, because you're merciful. You pursued a stubborn, rebellious, sinful, hard-hearted people and you saved us in your Son, Jesus Christ. May we know we contribute nothing to it. May we look humbly at those who do not believe, recognizing we need to pray for them and proclaim the gospel to them and trust your Spirit to work in them to save them. Father, may we always know, as we look across at any one, There, but by the grace of God, go I. That you have graciously rescued us in Christ. And that you will graciously bring us home. That we have every confidence that the grace you set on us before the foundation of the world will never be removed from us. Because you were the same yesterday and today, and forever. May we ever know that our righteousness is at your right hand, and he never changes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.